Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Casa on the Go. And I'm just so over the moon to have joining me today two amazing um, disability advocates uh, who are also both Casa volunteers. And so I'm so thrilled to have their expertise and um, experience to share um, with everyone today. So um, I'd love to welcome. Uh, Rashid Amrani, who is the Community Engagement Specialist with Safe Disability Services, um, a wonderful organization that's based here in Austin, um, as well as Heidi Lersch, the Educator and Training Coordinator with Safe Disability Services, to just share a little bit about yourselves and your roles um, and how you came to this work. Rashid, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, like like you said, I'm the community engagement specialist in disability services. Uh, so that means I spend a lot of time um, out in the community talking with other uh, service providers and um, just figuring out how we can best serve uh, children with disabilities. And my specific focus right now is identifying needs and resources in rural communities that can be shared or leveraged to improve responses to children and teens with disabilities who are victimized. Wow. Um, and my work, a lot of my work uh, specifically right now is happening in New Braunfels and Comal County. And I get to work with groups like uh, the Ark of the Hill Country and the Children's Advocacy Center is there. And then also Costa of Central Texas has been um, playing a huge role in the project I'm working on right now. Wonderful. That's so exciting. Thank you so much. Um, Heidi, how about you? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my name is Heidi Lurish and I'm an educator and training coordinator with Safe Disability Services. And I'm currently focused on developing an accessible, healthy relationships curriculum for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities in public school transition programs. And along with my coworker, Megan Westmore, we're focusing most of our work on supporting development of leadership, advocacy, and healthy relationship skills including a strong focus on safer sexuality. And I also work with the other amazing trainers in SAFE's Disability Services program, including Rashid. Uh, our program staff provide training in the Austin area and beyond, especially now we're doing a lot of virtual trainings on topics ranging from trauma-informed care for adults and youth with disabilities, safety planning for survivors with disabilities, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to healthy relationships, setting and respecting boundaries and consent. And all of our training focuses on the prevention of violence in the lives of children and adults with disabilities. Um, I'm also proud to be a CASA myself. I've been a CASA for a little over two years now. Wow, y'all are my heroes. And it's so exciting to hear even just this little bit about the work that you're doing, um, which is so important. And Heidi, to your um, point, I'm just so excited that you're working on that. I think, you know, education around consent and healthy relationships is something that all of our youth really need more access to, and, and particularly this group. And so wonderful to, to know that that's something that you're um, working on. So uh, before we... Um, 
kind of start to explore some strategies for how CASA volunteers can best advocate for um, youth with disabilities. Um, let's talk a little bit about the language that we use and why it's so important to kind of be aware of, of the words that we're using. So for an advocate who might have limited knowledge of disability etiquette and advocacy, um, what are some things that would be helpful to have on their radar as far as talking about these issues? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, language is really important when you're talking about someone's identity, someone's diagnosis, or someone's behavior. And using terms that are accurate and respectful can really build trust between you and the child. And it's also important to model respectful language around disability and behavior for other adults in the child's life. So a few things to keep in mind when talking about disability are person-first language and identity-first language. So person-first language means that you put the person before the disability. This sounds like a person with a disability, a person with autism spectrum disorder. And for some people with disabilities, person-first language is important because it puts their identity as a person before their disability. Another way that some people with disabilities communicate their identity is by using identity-first language. Identity-first language is when the disability is part of the description of a, a person uses about who they are. So this sounds like when people refer to themselves as disabled or autistic. And identity-first language is important to some people because it's an empowering way for them to communicate that their disability is not a negative and it's an integral part of who they are. And with identity, you always want to respect and mirror how the child talks about their own identity. So if they use person-first language, then you use person-first language. And if they use identity-first language, then you use identity-first language. But with children, we know there may be barriers to these conversations about identity and language, and whether that's age or communication barriers. So when you don't know how a child prefers to talk about their identity, the default is to always use person-first language. The other thing to remember is that not everyone identifies with the diagnosis that has been given to them. For example, a teenager who has a mental health diagnosis such as bipolar disorder may feel that they have been labeled crazy, and I'm using air quotes here when I say crazy, um, just because that's a cultural stigma and not ever a term that should be used to, uh, to describe anyone, but the child may not identify with the label of bipolar and may not trust anyone who labels them in that way. Having conversations with children and teens about how they talk about and relate to any diagnosis given to them will help you use respectful language when talking about them. Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much. This is great information for people to kind of wrap their heads around about how we communicate in a way that's going to be the most person-centered and respectful way so that we can build trust with the youth that we're here to um, work alongside. Thank you. So, yeah. so, oh yeah, and Rashid, please. Yeah, no, I think that it's it's a good segue to remember that uh, people with disabilities are people first, and there's a good chance you might not need to adjust your language at all. Um, if you're concerned about, um, you know, what what you're working on, or or you know, if 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 they might be limited by their disability, just don't don't worry about that. We all want a certain level of independence and agency over our choices. So if you're concerned about something, think about, you know, the way you're going to phrase it. And, and uh, instead of saying, you know, can you eat that? You might want to say, what do you want to eat? You know, or 
maybe what game do you want to play instead of can you play this game? Um, it's just a good way to, you know, reframe whatever your own worries or concerns are and give agency back to the individual. Um, because a good general rule of thumb is if referring to the disability isn't necessary, then you don't need to do it. Awesome. That's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you. And so a reminder for our advocates to think about how they can use open-ended questions that return the agency to the young person that they're working with instead of coming from a place of making assumptions that might be projecting limits onto someone. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Great. Well, something that um, one of you mentioned earlier was um, working on trauma-informed care. And so I think something that's important to keep in mind is that we know trauma can impact our behavior, and that's true for all of us. Um, so are there any examples that come to your mind um, or just words of uh, wisdom that you might have about how to ensure an advocate is um, using a trauma-informed lens when working with a youth who has a uh, disability specifically? Yeah, so a, a few examples come to mind. Um, once when I was working in a classroom supporting students with disabilities, we had a student who started stealing the classroom snacks. And um, when asked about it, the student became upset and their anger was escalating. And some people responded to the situation by assuming that the student was just greedy and they didn't want to follow the rules. But when we asked more questions and we really got curious about why this was happening, it came out that the student had a history of experiencing food insecurity at home. And this behavior was directly related to the trauma of food insecurity. Um, another example is that a few years ago, there was a situation where a child with a disability was abused by their bus driver. And the first sign that something was wrong was when the child started to refuse to get on the bus to go to school in the morning. The child would have what was interpreted as a fit, um, behavior issues to avoid getting on the bus. And it would have been really easy to label that child as being defiant or difficult or lazy, not wanting to go to school. Um, but when the parents insisted that they felt something else was going on, an investigation revealed that the bus driver was abusing the child. And that's why it's so important to remember, um, like you said, Margaret, that trauma absolutely has an effect on the behavior of all people and, and all children, especially for children with disabilities who may not use verbal communication or may have limited other ways to communicate. Behavior is the main way that children tell us what's going on with them all behaviors, communication. Um, I think a common reaction to a child who is exhibiting challenging behavior is to focus on, you know, how do we stop this behavior like as soon as possible? And while that's valid, especially if the, the behavior is having negative effects on the child or is a danger to others, the other extremely important question that the adults in the child's life need to ask is, what is the child trying to communicate with this behavior? What is the child trying to tell us? Um, is this behavior a response to a trauma reminder? Is this a fight or flight related behavior because the child feels unsafe? Um, is this child expressing that they have an unmet need? Maybe there have been a lot of changes in the child's life and they're responding to feeling um, insecure due to those changes. And as a CASA, you can pay attention to a child's behavior and really get to know what behavior is typical for this child and what behavior signals that something's off that maybe something has changed and more questions need to be asked. CASAs can play an important role in reframing the conversation around a child's behavior 
whether that conversation is in a meeting with the child's teacher or in a meeting with the child's placement or other people in the child's life. CASAs can bring a trauma-informed perspective by reminding the adults working with the child that behavior is communication and that challenging behavior is not a sign that a child is being deviant, but rather a sign that a child's desperately trying to communicate something important. So we've got to shift away from labeling children and behavior with words like explosive, mean, aggressive, acting out, trying to get attention, manipulative or dramatic. These labels make it more likely that adults will use punitive measures or restraint and seclusion on children with disabilities, um, both of which are very likely to cause additional trauma and make the child feel even less safe. So gotta get away from labeling children's behavior in ways that vilify them. And changing the way that we label behavior can improve our responses to, the, to situations that are challenging. For example, if we use the word scared instead of aggressive or explosive, um, if we use the word relationship or connection seeking instead of attention seeking, and if we use the word insecure instead of manipulative, then that really changes how we're looking at the situation and it makes our responses more compassionate and less likely to cause further harm to the child. Wow, that was so well put. I'm so grateful for you offering that perspective. I know I definitely hear the term like, um, while well, he was acting out, you know, like uh, pretty frequently when we're talking about um, children's behavior that may, yes, be truly coming from a, um, a place of a child trying to get their needs met. And so offering those um, ways of reframing um, how we're perceiving and talking about that behavior so that we can actually work towards um, supporting the child and and meeting their needs, which is what we're here to do. So thank you so much, Heidi. Rashid, is there anything you want to add as well? Yeah, I think I, think I agree with everything uh, Heidi said. I think the other perspective is you as the as the CASA volunteer or the adult, like how are you responding? How are you reacting? And, and how can you be mindful of your own emotions and reactions? Um, you know, when a child's in fight or flight, it can be frightening if you're, if you're witnessing the behavior. And will your affect and reaction offer connection and safety? Will it offer confusion? Will it offer disappointment? Uh, I remember several times as a teacher, um, I would want to help, but because of the intensity of the situation, I would get unsettled or scared or frustrated and end up feeling helpless. And that reads on your face and it reads in your body language. And uh, uh, when a child is in crisis, they need steadfast, calm, supportive reassurance and connection. Uh, and it's important that you know if you're able to offer that in the moment. Um, and it took me a long time and a lot of training and a lot of self-reflection to be able to be present and supportive during a crisis. Um, and it's a continual growing process. And I think if you can be as close to yourself as you can about your own emotional reactions and what leads to them, um, then your own self-reflection is a vital tool in trauma-informed practice. Wow, great point. Yeah, I, th I really appreciate how compassionately you put that. Um, but it is so important to keep in mind that our own self-awareness about how we're showing up as an advocate uh, is going to have an impact on the situation. And so how, um, whether we're being reactive um, or uh, coming, you know, able to take a deep breath and, and just kind of um, pay attention to how 
were responding and supporting the youth in that moment is so important. I'm really glad you you mentioned that. Yeah, deep breaths are vital. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, I'm 32 and I'm still working on that every day in my life, but um, it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just one more thing to add about behavior, and it was, uh, particularly behaviors that might be fight or flight, you know, those behaviors that are really intense and, and you know, kind of like Rashid said, maybe jarring. Um, those fight or flight responses are, are really actually protective responses that the child has developed in order to survive and adapt to trauma. So kind of reframing it in that way also helps us see that, the, you know, um, the child might be responding in this way because that's how they learn to survive. And so um, that also helps us approach the behavior in a really compassionate um, and understanding way. Absolutely. That's such a good thing for us to be keeping in mind. Yeah. Good point, Heidi. Um, so I think, you know, it's important for advocates to have awareness around the greater risks of harm that youth um, with disabilities often face. So can you talk a little about what kind of elevated risks um, these youth are facing? Yeah, sure. So Unfortunately, we know that children with disabilities are at least four times more likely to experience violence. Um, children with disabilities are at, our, are at a higher risk for experiencing sexual assault, bullying, and people with disabilities are one of the groups with the highest risk of being trafficked. Um, and we also know that for everyone, the most likely perpetrator of abuse is someone that the child knows and trusts. And for children with intellectual and developmental disabilities, that means a family member, a friend, or someone who has a relationship with the child related to the child's disability. So transportation providers, support staff, and school staff. Um, in a national survey of over 7,000 people with disabilities, 70% reported that they had experienced abuse, and most had experienced abuse on more than 20 occasions. Wow. So yeah, we know that in some cases, abuse is occurring from from childhood to adulthood without intervention, leaving children and adults with disabilities without justice and without healing services that they need to recover from the abuse. Um, so this is why knowing the signs of abuse and trauma are so important for anyone working with children with disabilities and knowing um, how to recognize the changes in behaviors that might indicate that, that something um, not right is going on. This early identification of abuse and trauma can end the cycle of violence and lead to quicker access to healing services. Um, we also know that abuse is more likely to occur in a closed setting. So we're talking about institutions, also known as state-supported living centers, group homes, residential treatment centers, or other group care facilities. And this is something to keep in mind as a CASA, thinking about the placement of your child when you're going to meet the child when you're observing the child, um, you know, just being extra observant um, of the child in their placement. Um, yeah, that's a great point. And so thinking about isolation as a risk factor, because when, when children are in these closed settings and they're isolated from their communities, and um, we know that the safest place for all children is to be integrated and included in their communities, because that's how that's where you have meaningful relationships with people who are not paid support staff. And if you think about yourself going out into the community, um, you've got relationships 
relationships with your hairdresser, with the person who delivers your mail, with maybe the, per the people at your local library. And all of those people are likely to notice when something's off with you and something's wrong or something might be going on. But when we have children secluded in these closed settings, then we don't have those meaningful relationships in the community that can really act as an important protective factor um, for children with disabilities. Great. That, yeah, so much good information for advocates to keep in mind. Thank you. Rasheed? Yeah, I just think, you know, especially in your role as an advocate, really think about, you know, the setting of your, of your kiddo. Is it an open or closed setting? And, um, you know, is it a RTC? Is it a, is it a foster home? Is it next of kin? Like, uh, some of these are more definitively closed settings, but, you know, also just uh, a home can function like a closed setting, depending on what's going on uh, in and out of that home. So, I mean, you know, learn about that kiddo. What do, you, what do you know about their access to settings outside of their placement? How do they get to school? Are they involved in extracurricular activities? Do they visit other family members? Are they included in errands like grocery shopping or going to do the laundry? Um, who takes them to all these places? Um, I, I think the more you think about, you know, kind of their access to, to what Heidi was saying is just like, you know, normal everyday activities outside of the house um, will benefit them because we know that increased isolation increases the likelihood of abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also just kind of recognizing, you know, the current situation with the pandemic and, you know, more people being in closed settings um, be, because of safety concerns. You know, I think that's where CASAs can really fall back on their knowledge of a child's behavior. You know, and when so when they're talking with the child, whether it's through, um, you know, a video call or a phone call or they're talking with the placement, really asking those questions like, oh, hey, you know, like what's going on with them? Are there new behaviors? You know, is there regression that's happening and getting curious about um, about those answers? Yeah, great point. Thank you so much for surfacing the, you know, current situation that we're in, too, because I think that's so important and thinking about especially youth who are in more isolating settings, such as a residential care type of like facility. Um, I, you know, it's been just incredibly heartbreaking to hear about um, visitors not being able to go to, you know, see youth and, and be connected with them in that way. And so would just really encourage any of our listeners to make sure that they're really upping their game as far as finding other creative ways to stay connected to youth as much as possible during this time in particularly. And like you're saying, Heidi, to, to kind of to just stay in communication with those um, providing care for the youth so that they're um, up to, they know what's, what's going on and how the youth's doing. And if there are any changes to be curious about. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So y'all have kind of already addressed this, but are there other ways that advocates should be thinking about how they can support um, or advocate for increased protective factors in uh, youth's lives? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the hopeful and exciting part of our work is that um, we know that children with disabilities can recover from trauma and thrive. Um, and I, I've witnessed um, an adolescent with a disability come into a new environment where their challenging behavior was met with compassion and care instead of fear and punishment. And 
that child was not only able to reduce some of their challenging behaviors, but the child developed really deep and joyful bonds with the adults caring for them. So there's a lot of hope um, for children to be able to recover from trauma and thrive. Um, and CASAs can, can support uh, that kind of secure attachment with those that are providing care for the child by um, making sure that they're uh, that all the adults in the child's life understand what trauma-informed care is. So, you know, we talked before about kind of shifting the lens through which we look at children and their behavior, um, making sure that all the adults in the child's life are on the same page about that. So um, any caregivers, family members, teachers, and, and really anybody else involved in the child's life. Um, and that, that might mean the CASA providing some information or su suggesting some resources for the adults in the child's life to check out. Um, and caregivers can also get support through many great advocacy organizations, um, including the ARC, VELA, Parent to Parent, Autism Society of Texas, UT Project Skills, which offers an eight-week online training course for caregivers of children with autism. Um, and that's a, that's a really great course. Um, so I encourage people to take advantage of that. And then there's also online support groups on Facebook for caregivers of children with disabilities that can help caregivers feel less isolated and can be a great outlet for parents and caregivers to channel feelings and struggles in really constructive ways. So CASAs can suggest that caregivers um, reach out and connect with those support groups to get additional help. Um, and then I think the CASA can also help caregiver remind caregivers that in order to fully support a child with a disability especially a child who has experienced trauma the caregiver has to make sure that they're taking care of their self also mm -hmm. um, and a therapy and counseling can be a great way to kind of keep um, yourself balanced you know for caregivers out there who are caring for a child with with a disability who has experienced trauma um, it's also really important to consider therapy for siblings, any siblings um, in the child's life or any other kiddos in, in the home, because siblings of children with disabilities tend to feel like they need to take on extra or they might feel isolated and alone. Um, so again, some sibling support groups on social media can be really helpful. Um, and then there are parent and caregiver specific groups that are specific to disability. So for example, you know, you can go on social media like Facebook and find a um, parents and caregivers of children with Down syndrome group and really connect with people who you feel like understand what you're going through and you can share tips and support with. Um, and that, that really reduces the isolation risk factor kind of that we were talking about earlier. The more that you can, the caregivers can connect with their community that um, the child can connect with their community, then the less isolated that um, caregiver and child are going to be. Um, one other thing that the CASA can do is to help develop partnerships between the family, the school, and the caregivers and any of the professionals, making sure everybody's on the same page about how they're responding to the child. So if there are behavioral interventions that are working really well at school, making sure that those are also being done in placement so the child has consistent caring adults providing the same care and structure and that helps give the child a real sense of stability and safety. Awesome, wow, so many great resources. Thank you so much for sharing all of those. And I'm just hearing 
the importance of consistency and communication across those um, who are connected to um, the youth and then just supporting the development of a, you know, um, robust uh, network of support around the youth and, and ensuring that everyone is connected to a sense of community and support and how important that is. Awesome. Thanks, Rashid. Anything you want to add as well? No, Heidi covered that one really well. I just would like to, you know, reemphasize that that there are so many uh, online organizations and support networks uh, around uh, children with disabilities, parents of children with disabilities, uh, mentors, teachers. Like, there's there's so many groups out there, and I can't think of a single one that I reached out to that wasn't eager and excited to like meet and talk about what was going on and like see how they could help and and if they couldn't help they wanted to connect me to somebody who they thought they could help so um yeah get out there and see what's out there and don't be afraid to to ask for help and ask for information it's there awesome that's so encouraging thank you uh, and before we wrap up oh sorry please <laughs> sorry so <laughs> i just had one more thing to add is that um a lot of children with disabilities um have they can access lots of programs and supports ranging from Medicaid to respite care to SNAP benefits to transportation. And so that's another thing for CASA to look into and you know work closely with the CPS caseworker on, hey, is this kiddo or is this placement, this caregiver accessing, you know, all of the resources and supports that they can um, in order to, to get all, all of the help that they need. That's a great point. I'm thinking about how overwhelming it could be for a caregiver in so many different situations to um, know where to begin as far as accessing the sports that might be available to you or even beginning to know what is out there. And so that's definitely a place where an advocate can um, step in and provide some enthusiastic um, support to help people get connected and um, informed. So great point. Um, any other thoughts y'all would want to share um, as we wrap up about how advocates can best advocate for youth with disabilities. You've shared some great tips and some awesome resources. And if there's anything else you want to add, I'd love to hear it. Um, we just have two specific resources that we've actually developed. My awesome coworkers have developed at um, SAFE and Disability Services. Um, so the first one is uh, a digital guide that is like a web-based app for smartphones that you can actually, you, you have to download through a web browser, but then once it's downloaded onto your phone, it functions like any other smartphone app. Um, and this was created for law enforcement, child protective services personnel, and anyone working with kids with disabilities. And it's a guide that provides tips on working with children with autism spectrum disorder, communication disabilities, intellectual disabilities, mental health disabilities, and children who are deaf, deaf blind, deaf disabled, or hard of hearing. So um, you go on to the app and each disability has a section on what to know, tools, and responding to distress. So it's really just tips for working with children with these disabilities, um, you know, how, how to interact with a child when they are in distress or when they are in crisis. Um, the guide has two sections that cover communication, interviewing, and responding to specific signs of distress. And so the way that you download um, this web-based app is you go to allkidssafe.org on your smartphone, and then you can download it right to your phone. And like I said before, once you've downloaded it to your phone, it functions just like any other smartphone app. So that's something, you know, that a quick resource that you can have with you wherever you are. 
wow, what an awesome resource. That's so great to know about. Yeah, and then the other one is a, actually a website, um, and it's called our Promoting Justice website. And it was developed for criminal justice and child protective staff, child advocates, disability service providers, educators, and families. Um, and this website provides information about responding to the abuse of children with disabilities, communicating and working with children with specific disabilities, and investigating abuse. Um, there's so much information, so much amazing information on this website um, that can really help you, um, can really help support you in understanding what the child you're working with has been through and again giving you more tips on on communication and the website is childabuseanddisabilities.safeaustin.org. Awesome. Wow, thank you so much. Rashid, anything you want to add before we close? Yeah, as a as a former teacher, I just uh I you know, a lot of our kids are starting school now and I, I think a great way for you to advocate for your child with uh, disabilities is to learn as much as you can about the special education services provided by school districts and schools. Um, you want to familiarize yourself as much as possible with their individualized education plan or IEP. That's a great way to help advocate for your child uh, or teenager um, and especially if they've had to transfer to a new school that new school is going to have to transfer services or write a new plan or, you know, figure out how to, how to figure everything out. And you can help them do that. You can help them do that. Um, I know there's a ton of unfamiliar jargon and lingo in the world of special education. And the more you know about what a school's plan is offering and what a school district can and will offer, then the better off uh, the child or teenager that you're serving will be. Um, yeah, and again, yeah, if, you're, if your kid is starting at a new school, you have an opportunity to advocate for services in that first month. They have to have a meeting within 30 days. If it's a, if it's a child with a disability, then they are going to have a meeting within the first 30 days of enrollment that talk about the services, and that is a great place for you to advocate and provide some input. Awesome. Such a good point and so timely right now. Thank you so much for bringing that up, and yeah, you know, there's so much to learn about as a CASA volunteer. And um, as I hope our listeners feel right now, there is so much expertise out there that is available to us. And so thank you so much to both of y'all for um, taking the time to share your knowledge um, with our network. And, and thank you so much for all that you do. And to our uh, listeners, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to CASA On The Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas CASA.